welcome to Flourishing Education, the podcast that provides you with conversations with experts and like-minded people who would like to see education turn into a flourishing environment for the well-being of all. So, are you ready? Let's start. Hope you enjoy this session. Welcome to another powerful, imperfectly perfect conversation. Today I'm talking to Alex Coast. So um, Alex is a youth rights advocate and father. Um, I contacted him last week because he wrote a piece for progressive education, which was absolutely beautiful and really resonated with me. So I'm delighted to be speaking with you today, Alex. Thank you. It's a pleasure to, to be on. Yeah, thank you. So, Alex, let's start with you know who you are and your journey from you know to, to that got you to where you are now, so that our listeners understand you know what you mean by sort of youth rights advocates and what that means. Sure. So uh, it really kind of starts with my own childhood. Uh, I grew up outside of. Uh, in the suburban area of New York City uh, in New Jersey and uh, went to a conventional public schooling, United States uh, definition of public schooling, um, education, and um, was the kid who played by all the rules and obeyed teachers for the most part and sort of was secretly miserable, but, you know, did the not quite the star student, but did okay. Um, I'd say where I really struggled uh, was socially as far as uh, bullying went and that sort of a thing. Um, something that really, even to this day, I think has impacted who I am. Um, and then when I was uh, 16, either 15 or 16 years old, uh, two extraordinary things happened at the same time, uh, coincidentally. Uh, one is I got my first job as a teacher. I started teaching uh, what at the time was called English as a second language to um, kids who were about my, my own age uh, who would fly over for summers uh, from other countries uh, in like a, a US immersion program, um, which was actually really neat. I did that for a few years. Um, and at the same time, my father, uh, handed me a copy of the book, uh, Summerhill, A Radical Approach to Child Rearing by A.S. Neal. Um, and the book, which is uh, about uh, an alternative school that as of this year turned 100 years old, um, really, the, the, the book really transformed who I was. Um, I think mostly just because it made me, for the first time, realize, oh, there can childhood doesn't have to be this way. Um, I think all children grow up first thinking that their own experience is the truth. That's the way people go. And as they get older, they, um, and this was one of those moments for me where, uh, and, and so between that already starting to work with kids as a kid, and then realizing that uh, there was a, there were other approaches to it. And some of them that were more respectful of, of, young people's own voices um, really changed me and all, all, also almost had me 
not fail out of school, but uh, all of a sudden I found myself really being like, you know, you can't tell me what to do, uh, <laughs> which made a, a, a couple of uh, challenging last years of, uh, of, you know, my my education before I went off to college. And then um, out, out of college, I ended up uh, teaching English as a second language, traveling uh, to other countries and other places. Uh, and ended up getting my teaching certification um, in, in New York City. Um, and immediately realized that I, it, I wasn't gonna be able to be a teacher. Um, and I, I, I recognized that I, uh, in the teacher's lounge where all the teachers would sit there and uh, you know, talk about the, the, the horrible student in their class, the kid that annoyed them all, uh, I would always sort of sit in the corner quietly and think to myself, well, that's my favorite student. Um, and I realized that I really loved the kids who disobeyed authority and quickly found myself, found, those kids immediately found me and clung to me um, and was finding myself kind of keeping secrets where like I was, uh, uh, you know, I was helping these kids and knowing that I shouldn't be in some strange, you know, like uh, uh, that I was the one that was, uh, fast forward 25 years, a couple of years ago, just to give an example of uh, uh, how this has transformed for me. I was also working in, in a public school system uh, in the United States doing um, these programs where I'd come in as sort of like a guest artist. Um, and because I, even though I'm a certified teacher in the schools, the laws said that a teacher from the school had to be in my classroom with me. Um, and so they'd be these after school programs in these really uh, what we call Title I schools, the, the schools that, were, that are really struggling, um, where uh, I, I think I was with the school I was in about 40, 45% of the kids were homeless. Um, um, and I remember this one day, this one kid, they, they could, there were a, several different classes they could go to and uh, the, sometimes they would just get assigned to one. And this one kid got assigned to my class, which was a really fun, it was called destroy and construct. I'd bring things in, give them hammers, let them smash it, and then give them ha hot glue and they could make like things out of it. Um, and uh, uh, this one kid, started crying in my class and this was like a 13 year old like you know a boy who you know in that sort of I was surprised that he would show that sort of emotion in front of his friends really didn't want to be in my class and the teacher was like sit down and shut up and you know you stay in your in the class sort of a thing and then as the teacher does went over to the corner and sat on his phone you know looking at social media or whatever while I'm running my class and uh, I after I noticed that the teacher went and sat down, I uh, sort of walked over and sat down next to the kid who was crying. And, uh, and I looked at him and I whispered to him, I said, go. And he said, what? And I said, get out of here. You don't want to be here. And he was like, and gave me this look like, what? And I was like, I, you know, I, I don't want you to be miserable. Get out of here. And the kid looks at me like I'm mad. And he goes, well, my backpack's over there. And I said, go into the hallway. I'll get your backpack and I'll bring it out. And he said, what if I get caught? And I said, I'll tell him you went to the bathroom. I let you go. <laughs> and the look on this kid's face was just shock and then like total joy. <laughs> and uh, I started finding myself doing a lot of that type of stuff. Uh, 
Did you get in the, trouble? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I also set myself up in, in environments like that where like, all right, fire me. You know, this was like an extra class I was teaching where I was trying to like help kids in these types of environments and was, you know, I didn't really care. And the, 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 when I walk into classes like that now, uh, when you get the kids who misbehave, it's so easy to, to, uh, to work with them. Because when you're working with conventional schooled kids, they don't know how to handle freedom. Uh, they have no practice at it. Uh, and so uh, oftentimes what I'll do after I've had a couple of classes with them and they know who I am and then they start like talking back and stuff and say, I could be wrong, but I think you probably like this class and you wanna have the opportunity to be here. And uh, I want you to be able to do whatever you want, but you know, inside your school, we're restricted in certain ways. And so if you start like misbehaving in ways where I get in trouble and I get kicked out, this class isn't happening anymore. And then you're all gonna be stuck with everybody else. So like, when I say something to you, I'm saying it because I want us all to be able to have this opportunity together. It's kind of remarkable how that sort of, that's all the classroom management you need. Uh, but in my regular day, what I do with young people to backtrack a little bit, there, I don't, the, the term classroom management to me is an evil, horrible term. Classroom management, learning how to manage children, to manipulate them, to control them, into behaving the way you expect them should never be done and is, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's denying children their rights as humans. Uh, so I, going back, uh, I started trying to work in environments, in atmospheres, and I started finding programs like the one I just described, these like after-school programs. The problem with programs like that is you can't ever really develop a relationship with the kids um, too deeply. By the time you do, they're gone. Um, and I, I do enjoy giving children those types of opportunities when I can. I think the, any amount of, of space you can give children to have their own free time to, a lot of times in my, the classes I'd let kids sleep. Uh, like that's what they needed. They just wanted time to be alone and be away and not to have some adult telling them what to do. Um, but I, I kind of wanted more for my, myself. And then 15 years ago, uh, my first child was born. Uh, my son, James. And uh, I also ironically found myself, I had bought my childhood home from my parents. And there I was back in the same system. And I was looking, thinking, oh my God, am I gonna send my kid to the same schools that I went to that I suffered through? And so I started looking around at alternatives and there really weren't any. There was the public school and then there were, you know, the preparatory, sort of the, the US equivalent of the boarding schools in, in uh, the UK of like the, the, uh, a lot of the schools that sort of prepare you for a certain university uh, experience, which isn't an alternative whatsoever. In fact, if anything, it's from my perspective worse, uh, more controlling. Uh, and so, uh, I started a school uh, and I based it off of Summerhill. Um, I, it was a free school. Um, and uh, I had no idea how to do it. And uh, there, there's actually a documentary uh, about the first year called Approaching the Elephant, which uh, 
is is a great documentary of every mistake I've ever made in life. Um, uh, it's a, a beautiful film, and I recommend it. Uh, uh, but yeah, uh, well, we can put if you give me the link, we can put it so people can watch it. If, if they it's it's kind of hard to find now because it's it's uh, uh it's one of those like little documentaries that sort of. Uh, but I'll find it. I'll, I'll I'll send you something so that uh, you, can, you can make it. Um, and uh, so I, I tried. I tried running a school and in some ways it was successful, in many ways it wasn't um, because it was my first attempt at giving children freedom. Um, I remember, for example, um, kids asking me things like we'd go to the public playground from the school. Uh, and uh, I remember this one time, uh, these, these two brothers who had just started the school asked me if they could climb on the roof of a gazebo in the park. Um, and I knew I shouldn't have let them, but I was like, well, there's no sign saying they shouldn't. And it wasn't a very high gazebo. And, uh, uh, you know, like, I don't think they're going to get hurt. But something tells me that other adults would really frown on me for letting them do this. And I was like, all right, go ahead, you know. And two minutes later, the police were there, <laughs> getting the kids down, and then and then you know taking my name down and saying who's the who's the principal of your school? And I was like, well, I am. <laughs> <You know? laughs> sort of, um, and those sorts of because uh, uh, I didn't nowadays I would the way I would handle that would be very different with kids. I deal with that all the time with kids now, and I, I kind of now know how to deal with the restrictions of society while trying to give children freedom. And ultimately, because I do believe it's a civil rights movement, in a civil rights movement, you're doing things that are acting against conventionality. You're, you're doing things that, that buck the system, that, that the system doesn't want to be having happen. There's a reason why people are oppressed. It, it may be systemic. It may not be that you know, there's a, a conspiracy where every teacher in the world is an evil person trying to manipulate children. That's not what I mean. But what I mean is the system is set up in a way to train us to think and act certain ways so that then we'll think and act those certain ways in workplaces as we get older. And ultimately the system doesn't really want independent thinkers, except for the elite rich people who then can be the ones who are the CEOs who can be the thinkers. Um, and so you're going to ultimately, you're going to make people upset. You're going to. Um, and so that's kind of become an expectation of mine as I work with young people is that most people are not going to understand it. They're not going to accept it. A lot of them are gonna feel challenged and threatened and think that I'm saying things. So in any case, I'm getting ahead of myself again. So then um, I ended up, uh, uh, the, the school only really lasted two years. Uh, I ended up getting divorced uh, after my second son was born um, and just fell into a very dark place in life. And I moved into New York City, into Brooklyn, uh, specifically to send my kids to the free school that I sort of modeled my school after, which was called the Brooklyn Free School. Um, and my kids ended up, in, uh, uh, my two older kids uh, ended up attending that school for a while. Um, the school ended up sort of shifting and a focus and um, 
moving more towards social justice and less toward youth justice, um, which those two can sometimes not, you know, if, uh, how do you work with children with social justice and racial justice issues um, while still respecting children's rights it can be a very tricky, uh, uh, a, a tricky thing to do. And I felt that the school was moving away from the youth rights part of it and was starting to manipulate children for the benefit of uh, social justice, other social justice issues than youth. Um, and when I started seeing it impacting my children, um, I, I ultimately took them out of the school and sent them to uh, what's called an agile learning center, um, which is a, a, new, a newer model of um, self-directed education that's uh, been around for, I don't even think a, a full decade yet, but, um, and uh, yeah, so uh, in the meantime, I started uh, running summer camps because um, I, I was trying to make ends meet as a single dad. Uh, and so it was, it's, it's hard to do this type of work, uh, you know, education's expensive and there's a monopoly on the methodology of education so uh and then you end up working only with well, at least in the united states certainly uh, uh privileged white kids uh, i imagine that's probably also true in the uk and a lot of other places in europe but um i, I realize that it's it's slightly different uh here from other places um and uh so how do you work against that? Uh, and that means not paying yourself a lot and so on and so forth. So in any case, I, I started trying to like work other jobs while trying to work with youth rights and uh, summer camps were an easy way to do it. Um, summer camps, interestingly, are one of the few ways that I feel you can actually make like a decent amount of money. Um, and I started running these camps in the Brooklyn Free School and the conventional schooling parents who were literally like pulling their kids away from me and my kids during the school year who were like, you know, oh, they go to that school, they're the weirdos, uh, were signing their kids up for my summer camp. And um, uh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't understand why. I was letting them tip couches over and dump glitter on themselves and, you know, have their arms up, uh, up to their shoulders and paint and we're running and there was no schedule and we're, uh, I still hadn't quite figured out how to run a healthy self-directed environment. Um, I was still figuring it out. It was getting better, but uh, uh, th those camps were still a, a mess. Um, is, there, is there also a, a film we can see for that period? <laughs> no, I learned my lesson to uh, uh, only let people document you uh, uh, after you know what you're talking about, apparently is the, uh, actually uh, one of the, I, I mean, no, I, I'm just kidding, but I, I, I love, I love showing, as you were talking about, about your podcast, I love being able to show my flaws and show myself mess it up. It can be really hard at times, uh, but I do feel like being able to be like, look, I messed it all up. Uh, as I always like to say, uh, 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 I, I don't remember, somebody told me this, I wasn't the originator of this, but uh, uh, an expert is a person who's made all the, all the mistakes in a concentrated field, uh, you know. Once you've screwed it all up in that one particular field, now you're the expert. You know? <laughs> um, so in any case, 
at that same time, uh, something else happened, which is somebody handed me, um, I think the, the name of the article is called The Overprotected Kid. It's in the Atlantic uh, magazine uh, from about, maybe about eight years ago, uh, it came out. And uh, seven, eight years ago. And it uh, talks about how we overprotect children. And then it went to talk about um, junk playgrounds or adventure playgrounds, um, which interestingly enough, there are quite a few of them in the UK and almost none in the United States. Um, and I thought it struck me when, uh, so junk playgrounds are, uh, I, I prefer the, the term junk playground. Um, are playgrounds where uh, oftentimes adults are restricted. Sometimes adults aren't allowed on at all, except for the trained play workers, which is an oxymoron on purpose, play work, um, who are trained like lifeguards to not interfere with play, but to be there in case they're needed for something. Um, and their children are, the, the playgrounds are supplied with literal junk not like broken glass and toxic chemicals, but like pieces of wood and fabric and string and hammers and saws and that type of stuff. Um, because by definition, junk has no value to adults, therefore children can take complete ownership over it without feeling like they need to ask permission. Um, and uh, they're these beautiful places. Uh, uh, and so I thought, oh, the reason why people are sending their kids to my summer camp, but running away from me during the school year is this isn't education, this is play. It's the summertime, we can take it more easily. And I realized, oh, I might have more of an opportunity to reach more people if I do it in the guise of play rather than in the guise of education, despite the fact that I see them both as education. Children are always learning, they're always. Uh, and I thought this might be a nice opportunity and so, and then I ran into a, an old friend of mine and uh, who had the same idea, who had read the same article. And we said, we'll meet once a week until there's a junk playground in New York City. And it took us about two years of running pop-ups where we would just bring junk into parks and be like, play. <laughs> um, to, uh, somebody approached us who at the time, there's an island uh, off the bottom of Manhattan Island in the East River in New York City called Governor's Island. Um, uh, maybe most famous, uh, um, the, the Wright brothers uh, flew a plane off of, it was one of the first times they ever flew a plane in front of a huge crowd uh, was off that island, which I always like to think about. Yeah. Um, and so they were, they were, they're still sort of actively developing it. It was a military base for many years. And then it was just sort of closed down rotting buildings uh, and no residents lived there. And someone who was developing the land there was like, I've seen you doing these pop-ups in parks. I wanna give you 40,000 square feet of land for free. Uh, and it was perfect because the problem with junk playgrounds is no one wants it next to their house because it yeah. looks like a junkyard. Uh, and since there were no residencies there. So we ended, it's called Playground NYC, play colon ground uh, NYC. Um, and it's still around today. Uh, I'm not active in that project anymore, uh, but it, uh, well, I am still a little bit, but, um, uh, and it's a successful, beautiful 
little, uh, as I described in an interview once uh, that somebody uh, interviewed me for an article and they named the article, Little Lands of Liberation. Uh, this this little little pocket of land where children can be free. Um, but so basically then after that, uh, that, that was also kind of the time when I started realizing that it, when I started realizing that it wasn't just about education was when I realized, oh, I'm not a teacher. This isn't about teaching. This isn't even about education. And this isn't about oppression in schools. This is about oppression. This is about parents oppressing their own children, whether they know it or not. This is about like, just, you know, if you have you, I don't know if, if you've seen signs like this in the UK, but I've seen them plenty of times in restaurants in, in, in uh, around here where it says like, unattended children will be given a, a cappuccino and a puppy or something like that. In other words, like, you know, make sure your kid's sitting with you. We don't want them running around a restaurant, right? It's like this snarky way of saying it, which, I remember the first time I saw one of those and being like, oh, that's so funny. And then thinking about it and being like, that's really screwed up. Like, really? Like, first of all, like you're making fun of like children's children being active and like their desire to have a puppy or something to love or something like that. And then you're also saying like, oh, we generically are just, you know, we can just lump every child into a, they need to be sitting next to mommy or daddy, otherwise they're misbehaving and getting in the way of the restaurant staff. I, I, I waited tables all through college. Having, you know, a three foot tall person that you don't see as you're carrying a pile of, of food out is a hazard. I get it. I understand why restaurants don't want kids running up and down the aisles. But at the same time, therefore, like, so what I now do is I replace child with any other oppressed group of people you know it could be people of color it, it could be uh, um you know uh, non-binary people it could be like uh it, it could be i don't know you name your group and if you then plug that in you would say oh my god that's discriminatory that's terrible that should never be but then we do it to kids and you're like you know oh yeah it's just kids we can ma manipulate the hell out of them we can tell them where to go and what to do all day long. And we do, we all do. Uh, well, not all of us because I don't, but, um, and there's a handful of other people who don't. Um, and when I started realizing that, I realized that was when it started clicking. And I was like, oh, first I just wanted to open a school cause I didn't want my kid to suffer through the schooling that I went through. And then I was like, oh, well other kids should have this too. And then little by little, I realized it was when I really started becoming a dad and started interacting with other parents that I realized, oh no, this is everywhere and this needs to change. And this isn't just about school. This is about helping young people get the respect that they deserve. And when you actually, you know, uh, I think it was somebody at Summerhill, a, a kid at Summerhill uh, remarked about um, uh, William Golding's Lord of the Flies said, well, of course they behaved that way. They were, you know, conventional schooled kids. They, they didn't have any practice at being free, right? You take a bunch of kids who have been oppressed in a schooling system for a bunch of years, who've never made a decision for themselves ever. You throw them on an island together and let them starve with a bunch of coconuts and a few pigs. Like, yeah, of course they're gonna kill each other and go crazy. Like, who's, who's not? And, and we're criticizing children of this? Like, how many 
countries is my country occupying right now and oppressing and killing people like in the name of democracy like yeah right you know why are we criticizing children over this <laughs> um and but so if if you let children remain free right they, they teach themselves to walk they teach themselves to talk they ask critical questions they're, they're little scientists they're, they're so observational that they, they use trial and error and and you know they have theories that they work out uh, the reason why you know evolu evolutionary biologists say the reason why humans of all mammals and mammals in general have longer childhoods or childhoods at all compared to say many fish that are just spawned and then you know adulthood starts on day one um, is because we need to have trial and error. We need to we need to be able to screw things up and know that I'm not going to die. I'm not going to be eaten by a lion. I'm not going to starve to death. I'm not going to be homeless or whatever. That's why we have childhoods and children are so good at that. And if you actually leave them like that, you don't oppress them because once you're oppressed, then you got to get all that oppression out. Now we're talking about a whole different story. And every kid who you're like, see, see, I gave them a day to buy themselves and they played video games all day long. It's like, yeah, but you're not taking into account the 10 years before where you told them they couldn't do that. <laughs> of course they're going to do that. You know, as the, the, uh, the Fantastics, the musical says, uh, you, your daughter brings a young man home, says, do you like him, pa? All you have to do is say, he's a fool. You've got a son-in-law. Uh, you know, they're going to act exactly the opposite of what you tell them to do because you've been oppressing them. Yes, that's they're behaving the way they should be behaving. Good for them. I'm glad they went and played video games all day long. And to be fair, also, as I say, I say to my husband often, to be fair, what do you do when you come home and you're a bit stressed out? And you, you know, you just go on your phone and scroll down. So they do exactly the same as what we do, which is finding a way to. <laughs> to release the, the emotions or whatever's gone on in school. So, you know, fair enough, really. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Uh, the amount of times where my, my two older kids now are 50, well, they're, they're 14 and 12, their birthdays are both coming up. And then I have a four-year-old as well. Um, and the two older ones now, because they've just grown up, they call me out on stuff all the time they're always like no dad like <laughs> you you just you know like where did you get that idea that i you know i i i'm i'm not doing well or like i should be doing something else uh um because they know that we're having a dialogue um i call i call them out on stuff all the time too don't get me wrong yeah. <laughs> um but uh but so the point of it, what i was trying to say is just that if you actually can observe a child who hasn't been oppressed, and that's a rarity to find, but if you can find those kids and observe them, it's phenomenal how responsible they are when they really know they're actually 100% responsible for making their own decisions. No kid wants to be illiterate. No kid wants to get lost. No kid wants to be a drug addict. Uh, I remember uh, uh, I was putting away some money for my kids for college, for university. Um, uh, and I went to a financial advisor and I said, well, I want some sort of an investment 
where when they're 18, the money becomes theirs. Uh, because most of the pro most of the plans, the money's still mine, and then I can dictate how they use it. Uh, and I was like, well, you know, I'm saving it for them. It's their money. I want them to have it. Uh, and the fi financial advisor said, 18, you want to get, you know, you save $100,000 and you want to give it to an 18-year-old? That's a pretty wild age to be giving a kid a large sum of money. He said, what if they buy drugs? And I said, if they want to buy $100,000 worth of drugs at 18, clearly I did a poor enough job as a parent, they should go do that. <laughs> and the financial advisor was horrified by me. <laughs> um, so uh, in any case, from there, I, the, from the playground, I realized the problem with the playgrounds is that they're still fenced in. You're liberated here, out here, you're, you're, you're oppressed. So that led me to the project that I work on now, which is called Flying Squads. It was actually a, a, a British anarchist named Colin Ward, W-A-R-D, um, who I was reading his book, I have it, it's right behind me, uh, The Child in the City. Uh, it's a beautiful book. And in it, he talks, he, he ran uh, uh, some junk playgrounds and, and was a youth rights advocate in the UK, kind of, and a writer, uh, kind of mostly known in the 1970s. Um, and uh, in the book, he sort of says, he says, you know, if you want children to be free, well, he, first he says, you, you, can, you can see how unfree children are by how many playgrounds are in their neighborhood. Normally we look at a neighborhood and be like, oh, this is friendly to children. It has lots of playgrounds. And he's, you know, he's joking in a sense, but he's saying, no, because you're saying, oh, here's the spot for the kid. And here's where serious stuff happens. The real world's out here. You know, that's the spot for the kid. He says, if you really want to make a, a city free, th this particular book's about cities. He also wrote one about uh, uh, the country. But um, he says, you need to make the city accessible to children. They need to be able to feel comfortable walk down the street and go into the store and buy something and that neighbors are looking out for them and all those things we sort of uh, think about. If It's interesting if on uh, uh, Google images, uh, if you Google... Uh, children playing in New York City, like 80% of the images that come up are children in black and white photos from like my grandparents' days playing on the streets. And it's so fascinating because it's like, oh, right, yeah, we don't, of course, because children don't play in New York City today. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to, I wanted to do something where I was doing sort of the junk playground thing, but in public, where we take over, where we're a group of activists taking back our city for children. And so I started first. I started doing a program where I was getting kids lost in New York, where I would just like put them on a subway and be like, "Good luck." Um, but uh, the problem with that was that it was still too top down. It was still too much me being like, we're gonna go get lost kids. Um, and so I realized really what you need to do, it, it was kind of hard to come to because this is really hard to sell to parents is I'm gonna run a program where I'm just gonna go out into a public spot and you, your kids are gonna come and we're gonna stand there and go, now what? That's, that's what flying squads are. It's, there's no materials, there's no plan, there's no home base. It's just me and a group of kids. Interestingly enough, really the me part shouldn't even be there. 
right? The me part is only there because society says, no way are we allowing these kids to do this without Alex, right? Um, and oftentimes, because the group, I've been doing it for a few years now and I've been working with the same group of kids and now they're all kind of preteen teens. I was just remarking to uh, uh, Noah, the guy who runs Brooklyn Apple Academy, the homeschooling co-op that we run flying squads out of, uh, because they're all sort of teenagers now, I sort of feel there's this awkwardness where they should all like be off in a basement somewhere playing truth or dare, but then there's like some 46 year old dude hanging out with them. There's like a weirdness of hanging out with a bunch of teenagers, you know? Um, but, but we make it work. Um, but, and a lot of it, and this, the last year obviously because of, of COVID has been significantly different. It's mostly been us. It's been us in a really big park in New York City over and over again, trying to build houses and the parks department coming in and being horrified and ripping them all down because God forbid a homeless person feels comfortable in the house to be built, you know. Uh, th that's why they tear them down. Um, and uh, uh, so it was basically a year long fight between us and the parks department to try and make the park into a junk playground. <laughs> but prior to that, and certainly what we'll do next year is we just took over the city. We would just go anywhere and oftentimes a lot of places, it's a lot less, sometimes you'd go to museums or that sort of a thing, but usually not. Um, a lot of the times it'd be us like going into uh, supermarkets or like just places and having that same sort of, you know, don't, we're gonna give the kid uh, an espresso and a kitten uh, if you leave them unattended sort of a feeling. It, that's what, it was a kitten and an espresso, not a cappuccino and a dog. But uh, uh, I was. Close. Um, it might be uh, a new one. You might want to sell that one as a new sign. <laughs> um, and uh, and us just being in a lot of places where a lot of adults are like, "Why you should be in school, kids? What are you doing here? Like, get out of our way! You're you're bothering us." And us uh, doing all sorts of sometimes very serious projects. Most of the time, actually, what I realized, somebody said to me, because we, we do a lot of pranks um, and, and we talk a lot about responsibility of pranks and making sure that the prank is actually funny for the person being pranked, which is very hard to do. Um, it's like being a comedian and not offending anyone. Um, but uh, somebody pointed out to me, they said, well, pranks are young people's form of civil disobedience. It's practicing civil disobedience is what it is. Um, and so we do a lot of pranks, just sort of silly stuff. Like the other day, so in the park that we, we've been meeting uh, all year long due to COVID, there's a, a road inside the park where joggers and bicyclists can go. Um, and it's very funny because all these people are jogging and biking just in a circle in a park when you actually stop and think about it, it's sort of weird. And one of the kids came up with the idea, which I love. We made a whole bunch of signs as if it was a marathon. And we stood on the side cheering everybody on like, oh, you can do it. Yeah, yeah. And all these joggers are running by us, sort of looking at us, cheering, cheering everybody on. And it was just completely silly, you know? And it's sort of pranking the joggers in the park. It's harmless enough, it's funny, 
us organizing like, all right, what materials are we going to get? How much money are we going to spend on this? How do we want to convey the sign? Is it going to be funny? Then, of course, we always make them into movies. So we made a video of it and then editing it and then all the things that have to do. You're learning how to do projects from start to finish, that sort of a thing. So and then I'll just say so that kind of leads you up to where I am in life. And then I'll just say the, the one other really important thing that I like to convey. There's a, a, a short film made about 20, 30 minutes long called The Land. Um, and it's, it's about a junk playground in Wales. Um, and I, I know the, the director is somebody who, who I know. Um, and in, in the documentary, um, she films one of the play workers, one of the, one of the adults that works at the junk playground. And they said this little bit that I'm gonna paraphrase that has stuck with me ever since that has become my, this is, if I could give advice to parents, it's this, which is, there are two types of dangers. There are risks and there are hazards. You want children to avoid hazards and to take risks. So you don't want a child to step on a rusty nail that's laying on the ground that they didn't see. That's a hazard. We don't want that danger. You do want a child to climb up a tree and climb out on the branch because they're well aware of the risk that they're taking that they could fall off and break their leg or their neck. Interestingly enough, that risk of climbing out up on the tree could also be a hazard. It could be the kid's first time ever climbing a tree and they don't know how to do it. It could be raining out and they could slip. There could be a kid who's really good at climbing trees who's 10 branches higher up in the tree who's teasing them saying, ha ha, you can get up. And now the kid's going past their zone of safety and pushing themselves because of that kid that's pressuring them. All of those things can play into it. It could be the same kid on a different day. One day it's a risk, one day it's a hazard. What that means is if you're an adult that's working with a young person, you need to be familiar with who that person is, understand where their boundaries are, their own personal boundaries are, and make sure that you're just helping out with them, making sure that they're safely and securely not going past it, but also not going too far below it so that they actually are pushing their boundaries a little bit. And sometimes they shouldn't be pushing them. Sometimes they're sad, their dog just died. We just got out of a pandemic, whatever, you know, like sometimes they do just need to not push themselves. Just like all of us, some of us, we get home from work we shouldn't be pushing ourselves. We want to sit on our phone and scroll through mindless whatever. Um, but as soon as you start looking at it, that's the key to giving children freedom. That's the, if, if you want to be a youth rights advocate, if you want to help young people be free, develop a relationship with them, make sure that they trust you. They know you're not manipulating them whatsoever. There's no... I really seek it, like my kids know, in my opinion, you're not a, a smart person. I don't like you in life if you're not literate. I love reading. I think that, you know, everyone should read everything, right? And my one of my kids, my oldest son doesn't really like reading. And I found myself being like, come on, why don't we just, you know, like, I'll read a book to you. Like, hey, you wanna, you know, I have an audio book account. Uh, here, I'll give you the login to it. And he was like, you know, back off, dad. Like, I'm not interested in reading. 
And it took a lot for me to be like, oh my God, my son's not gonna be a failure. <laughs> because to me, like to not be a failure meant that, you know, you needed to have read The Great Gatsby or something, I don't know. That, I'm just trying to pick an awful book. It's an awful good book, but um, uh, you know, because uh, 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 if you, and, and to identify that each person is going to figure out for themselves what it means to be a success. And that if you really, really actually leave them, they're gonna do it. And my, my oldest son wants to be a video editor and is learning German. My next oldest uh, is kind of like, wants to learn marine biology, plays a bunch of instruments and is also learning German. And my youngest who has renamed herself Great Surfer, she refuses for us to call her by her birth given name. So her name is now Great Surfer, wants to be a surf, she's four. She wants to be a surfer and a skateboarder. And if you had said to me, like when I decided to be a parent 15 years ago, my kids are gonna like learn German and be marine biologists and video editors and surfers. I'd be like, no way, that's not at all what I was planning. I had a whole plan set out for what my kids were gonna be. And if you wanna be a good parent or a good care provider or just a good ally to a young person, all those expectations need to be thrown away. And then when you do throw them away, the problem is I figured out pretty early on, oh, throw them away. But then I was like, but how do I still help them? And it's that, it's letting them take risks, but not hazards. When my kids have been sitting on the computer all day long and I go up to them and I say, you know, you really haven't like stretched your body. You haven't like engaged with other friends and stuff like that. Sometimes they're like, dad, I have a deadline for a class and I've been working on it. Or like, I really love this new video game I just got. And I want to, I want to like get to level seven by tonight. Either one of those is a completely valid reason, but because they know that I really, if, if they're like back off dad, I'm going to be on my computer for the next two days, tough luck. Um, and I'm using computers as an example because it's one that I think a lot of parents struggle with today. Um, I back off. Um, but most of the time they look at me and they say, oh, dad loves me and trusts me. And he's right. Like I should take a walk around the park and we'll go and just take a 20 minute walk around the park and sometimes, you know, do something else together or whatever, because there's complete trust there. They really, really know it. And without that trust, if you're manipulating them at all, you're losing that. You're not going to be able to have that really sincere dialogue with them because they know it. Maybe they don't know it consciously. Maybe that's the elephant in the room and none of you are talking about it, but they know it. They know it better than you know it. In fact, I know that they know it better than you know it because my kids call me out on it and I go, oh damn, I didn't realize I was trying to do that. You're right. Uh, and all of that needs to go away first. And then you can help be their lifeguard, be that person that's there that helps them when, when, they, when they need the roots and they need somebody to come back to, they'll come to you. And like the kids that I work with come up to me and talk about like their boyfriend problems. They, they talk about, you know, uh, the, 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 the 12 year old girl who stole her dad's extra cell phone, like his old mobile phone that he wasn't using anymore out of his draw because she just really wanted a phone and brought it to Flying Squad, knew, came, 
walking straight up to me and was like, I took this out of my dad's draw. I'm so excited to download some games on it. Today, can we go somewhere where there's free Wi-Fi? Because it didn't have a phone service. That's trust. Should she have stolen the phone? Probably not, but probably yes, because she's taken that phone for a reason. And now that she knows that I trust her, we can have that dialogue. We can, I can talk about like, you know, what's going to happen if your dad finds out that you have this, like, and you know, why do you feel like you need this? Like, what is it that your parents aren't giving you? Why aren't they listening to you about the things that you, the tools in society that you feel you need, that you feel that at 12, you fairly should have, but they're saying you shouldn't have yet. Uh, and then we can have all those dialogues. And rather than me saying, no, shame on you, you shouldn't have taken that phone from your dad. Instead, I said, yes, you took that phone from your dad. That's awesome. Now let's figure out how to deal with this. So. Which is, which is awesome because it's awesome, but also there's a part of me as a, as a mom, and I know some of my listeners, listeners will listen to what you've just said and just go, oh my goodness, this is such a shift in paradigms and in terms of how we view our young people and you know our children because there's a part of me that just really feels like somehow we we scared to death of our kids like we it, it it's like we just we worried that if we let them be themselves somehow they're just like you said they're gonna turn into monsters or I don't know what it is it's just it's quite weird what you know in terms of societal construct we hold um, I, mean, I don't blame parents for it, though, it, you know, from from the especially the documentary uh, uh, about the school I started. But just when people hear what I do with kids, 99% of the time, the only resource that adults have for hearing stories about kids being free or left unattended is Lord of the Flies, which is why I brought that one up. And it's such a terrible example. But in our society, we don't have we don't have anyone modeling for us how to healthily be with young people in a way like this, which is why, frankly, why I, you know, when so, like, I'm really honored that you asked me to be here. But like, for me, this is important because maybe then a few more people can hear that and can start modeling that and then people in their neighborhood. And it doesn't, the other thing about it is it doesn't have to be all or nothing. I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying, I am saying, pull your kid out of that oppressive school. Stop doing all these things with your kid that are oppressive and telling them what to do. I am saying that. But if you're not ready for that, let your seven-year-old decide how you're walking home from school today. You know, let, let your nine-year-old decide what you're having for dinner or make the dinner and burn it and screw it all up. <laughs> like, let them let them and 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 if that still means that they have to do their homework after that so be it um there's a technique called uh special time that's one that i uh is it in that article no i think it's in a different article that i wrote uh that I, where i talk about special time and special time um uh rc is the name of uh it's like a um like group therapy um process and they use special time it can be done with adults but oftentimes it's meant with children where you just dictate for the next half hour is your special time. All attention is on you. I'm going to be as non-judgmental. The only reason I will inter interrupt you is if you close your eyes and start walking across the street and don't see the car, right? Otherwise, no, no, no judgments. I'm just gonna go practice, give your kid a half hour of special time every day. Like 
just give them that half hour. Let them decide and observe them and see how they decide to spend the time. And they might spend the entire time doing nothing, but that's because what they need to do is nothing. And if you let them do that for long enough, then they're gonna start doing something and whatever that something is. And you will learn so much about your child by giving them that time. And then that will probably grow into you giving them a little bit more time because you're gonna start being like, whoa, how awesome that they're interested in doing this. Unfortunately, there's like a, 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 a proportionate for every, there should be like a scientific calculation for like every day a child is oppressed, they need X amount of days to decompress what we call de-schooling to like, you know, fight against the man, you know? Uh, uh, it, 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 the 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 method that, that what that's called is like in the terms of self-directed education in, in the field that I work in we call that de-schooling, um, and unfortunately, if you're gonna do this with your 12-year-old or your 14-year-old or your 16-year-old, a lot of what you're gonna see is just them fighting against all the stuff that you didn't let them do for years and years and years. You do it with a six-year-old, they're probably gonna act like how a six-year-old acts. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's it's good to have that in mind if you are doing this with your 12 year old or whatever you're probably going to be disappointed at what they do with that free time but that's exactly what they need to do with that free time uh, it, or or what a lot of you know I always say like that de-schooling is is what in the United States at least uh, is classically maybe not so much anymore because colleges and universities are so expensive but when I you know I, I went to college in the 90s is uh, kind of the, the, like what we call college. Like all the kids who like, boom, they get out of home, they go to college and the next thing you know, they're drunk up on a bar dancing with the lampshade on, that's kind of de-schooling. It's like the, oh my God, like, why are you doing this? And the reason why they're doing it is because finally at 18, they finally have a day where they can be like, I'm gonna choose what I'm gonna do with my day and I'm gonna do the dumbest thing possible because that's what I want to do. Uh, so it's not necessarily pretty, but it's usually necessary. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. But you know, that sounds cool. It's awesome. <laughs> oh, wow. Which I, I just absolutely powerful, so powerful. So for, for our parents who are probably a lot of them like me, you know, their kids are in mainstream, so they may not be, I mean, some of them may be um, more progressive, I hate that word, progressive or alternative, you know, like, like, you <laughs> shouldn't be, I hate that word, anyway. Um, the parents who are like me, mainstream, and, you know, have their kids in a system that's quite oppressive, what would you advise? What's the first few steps? What's the, you know, Find, find the hours of a week, maybe block it out on your calendar as a to-do or something. Like find the hours where, I get it. Like they have to go do their homework. They, you know, they're doing their extracurricular sports or whatever. Find the time where they don't open it up, be very clear about it to them and, and, be, and be completely honest with them. Be like, look, I feel like I wanna give you some more space and time to determine what you wanna do with your time. And I'm gonna be non-judgmental about this. And, um, and then offer, uh, in the beginning, I would say just, especially for older kids, 
that's all you need to do is just giving them that time and being very clear about why you're giving them the time. Um, after a little while or with younger kids, then also providing, it's not about being negligent. This isn't about leaving them alone. This is about giving them their time and then being extremely receptive once they're used to it and they have, then they're gonna come up to you, you know, the seven-year-old who wants to build a go-kart. And I'm giving this example because this happened with my son. The, the, when I knew that I knew that the Brooklyn Free School wasn't working for my son anymore, it was a self-directed school. And I'm not trying to badmouth the school. I'm just talking about my own particular experience at that school. Um, he was seven years old. He wanted to build a go-kart. They said, well, that costs money. So you're gonna have to bring it to the democratic meeting where decisions are made, where everybody in the school votes on the decisions. So at seven years old, he brought it to the meeting. They told him he was gonna need a budget. So he got somebody to help him figure out the budget for how much it was gonna cost. Ultimately, they said, well, we can make it into a class um, and you need 20 kids in a school of about, I think it was like 50 or 60 kids at the time. You need 20 kids to approve it, sign something to get that budget and then we'll start the class and you can build go-karts. So my seven-year-old went around, got 20 people to sign it, got the budget, got the class started, got the teacher. And by the end, and that was like October, if I remember correctly, this was years ago. Um, and in June, their go-karts didn't have wheels on them. And that to me is a failure of, that is not self-directed education, that's negligent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm, I'm using that as an example. I, I, I apologize for bad mouthing the school in that way, but that, that to me is an example of it done poorly. It's not about leaving them alone. A seven-year-old can't go to the hardware store. They can't cut the wood by themselves. You should let them try and cut the wood themselves. Um, also, I work in wood shops with kids a lot in, in, at Brooklyn Apple Academy. The, the, it's an unschooling center. Um, and we have like a makerspace wood shop and sometimes a kid comes running into the wood shop and says to me, I need a sword. And they want to build a sword because they want to have a sword battle. The swords are probably the number one thing built in the wood shop. Um, and, and half the time, uh, and discussing violence and all that stuff is another, that's a topic for another day. Um, but in any case, sometimes that kid comes into the wood shop and what they want is a sword because there's a kid in the other room who they want to have a duel with. They're not looking to saw the wood themselves. What they're looking for is a sword. So make them the sword and give them the sword. Other times that kid comes in and is saying, hmm, I, I've made seven swords and I really wanna learn how to make one in this way that you know it folds and fits in my backpack. That kid now all of a sudden, it's not about sword making, it's about carpentry and expertise and learning yeah, how to craft. Knowledge, yeah. Same request two completely different ways of approaching it with the kid. And that second one is, the, is kind of the case that you need to get to with kids where like, you need to know when to step in and be like, hey, I can see you can't saw this and it's frustrating the hell out of you. And hey, it's going to fall apart in a half hour, but you made it completely yourself and you're joyous about it. And knowing how and when you're gonna mess it up a thousand times, but as long as you're trying to do that and with me, I'm just completely transparent with kids. I'm like, do you want me to saw this for you? I see that it's str you're struggling with it, but like, I think you should do it. And then they're like, no, I'm really tired of sawing my arm hurts. And I'm like, all right, but you know, 
I kind of feel like a failure if I saw it for you because it's supposed to be your project. I say that to them. I talk, I, there's no secrets about this. It's all about talking to them about like, I feel uncomfortable when kids start talking about, the teenagers I work with start talking about like sex education or like not sex education, but just like sex and stuff. And they start coming up and talking to me and asking me questions. And I start talking to them. Sometimes I'm like, I feel really uncomfortable about this because it's pretty taboo for a person my age, especially like a guy to be talking with a 13 year old girl about you know how she's feeling sexually about her boyfriend or whatever. Like that's a tough topic for me to be talking about. So what do I do? I talk to the 13 year old and say, I'm feeling really uncomfortable about this, but you know, let's start down this way. And then maybe there's like a resource, maybe there's somebody else you should be talking to, or maybe like I can just answer this for you. Like I try and be as transparent about my own awkwardness <laughs> with things or like, you know, the, when the kid comes up and talks to me about bullies or whatever, I'm like, I was bullied as a kid and this is really triggering for me. When the kid climbs the tree, and uh, uh, this is a good one in play work, when you have multiple play workers on a junk playground, um, I get kind of uncomfortable. I'm not scared of heights, but like, I can't really look at the kid who's 60 feet up in a tree. It freaks me out. But I know kids who can climb 60 feet up in trees. And so that's a moment where I have to know about my own fear. This is my baggage, it's not their fear, it's my fear, right? And on a junk playground, I check out with the, I'm like, hey, you're cool with watching the kids 60 feet in the tree? Will you do that while I go over here and help the kid with the hammer? Like, um, and just being, identifying, and, and in general, just knowing like if you're, um, if you have your own baggage, if, you know, I remember when I got divorced, I was depressed, I was miserable. I was in a horrible place in life. That came out completely in my work with young kids. Maybe I wasn't telling them, hey, I'm depressed and talking to my therapist and uh, you know, I just got divorced or whatever. But actually now a lot of the kids I work with who I've worked with for years, I've talked to them about like having gotten divorced and all that. I should be talking to them about that. The, the, sadly, the majority of marriages end in the first seven years. Like they should be hearing about this. Why are we hiding that from kids? Why, you know, why are we not letting kids curse? Like, I don't get it. it like, you know, th that's, that's part of life. Like, why are we trying to create this innocence and like keeping them from knowing certain things? You know, when something horrible happens in the world, I need to be aware of what triggers the kids. Like if the, you know, a lot of like the, uh, like George Floyd's death, like I need to know a lot of the kids that I work with are white, but I work with some kids of color and I, as a white man, I had no idea how it's, how it's working for them. And I need to be really, really, really careful with that and how I talk to them about that. Um, talking about this within, um, especially with, with regard to race, there's a lot of privilege behind this, um, but it's also in the United States, certainly, I can't really speak for other places in the world, but I think a little bit, I, I lived in, in the UK for a bit and I think I know enough. Um, I think I can say it's safely the same there. The conventional system of education is about white privilege and it's and it's continue it's perpetuating sy systemic racism 
And there are people out there The I'll just say Akila Richards, um, Raising Free People is her podcast. Uh, is definitely, that's the, the first one to start with. And um, somebody I've been honored to have worked with in the past. Um, yeah, her book is awesome. Uh, uh, there's somebody who's doing it for a very different reason and is doing it because this is, this is about freeing people of color from a white system of education that settler colonialists invented to keep everybody oppressed. Um, and that's a whole other, it's a topic I, you know, I shouldn't be the one talking about that one, but uh, it's something I'm very aware of and something I talk about a lot with kids. But in any case, I was just gonna say, as far as like, it, you were, you were, as a white person, I would be being racist, never mind just not helping kids if I wasn't talking about what happened with George Floyd or any other number of, in the last year, incidents of that sort. Um, if there's a school shooting, I need to talk to kids about that. Like all sorts of stuff, um, knowing how to talk to them about that, but hiding from it only is causing more problems. Uh, you know, it's like addressing little symptoms, but letting the, the disease stay. Uh, we, we need to address that there's a disease and we need to talk about it so that we can cure it. Um, and we, and more, more, most importantly, we just need to, I talk all the time with kids about that. It's funny because the kids I work with, I'm always doing stupid stuff. And every once in a while, a lot of the stuff that it looks like we're doing is just like crazy, silly, whatever. And uh, and every once in a while, a kid that I work with who knows me will be like, oh, like, you really thought about this, Alex. And I, I, for all the silliness and all the craziness and all that, I've put years and years and years of reading books and research and talking to people and experimenting and all of that into this. And it's something that because it's unconventional, it's hard to research. It's hard to know how to do it. It's how hard to find somebody because we we all work based on going back to children we look at models right we look at the older people and then pick and choose the parts that we like and the parts that don't work and then we create our own model and when you don't have a model above you to pick from you're just sort of flailing in the dark trying to find things that work and most of the time you're falling down a flight of stairs you know uh but you know in any case I think you're a fantastic model, though. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> I've loved listening to thank you to your story and and you know really inspirational. Um, yeah, truly inspirational. And there's there's lots and lots of resources out there now. It's growing. The so the, I work the one of my other jobs is working. I work as the editor for Tipping Points magazine and. A book publishing company, which is for the Alliance for Self-Directed Education, um, uh, which is self-directed.org. Um, that's one great resource. There's plenty of other ones out there. Um, and I'm always, feel free to put my contact information or what, like, I'm, I'm always, I may not have the time to be able to help everyone that if people want, but I, I certainly would be happy to have some sort of a dialogue and try and point out resources for people and that sort of a thing. And there's a lot of other people. And in the UK, there's, 
I don't know how many of your listeners are in the UK. I assume most of them, but there's yeah, quite there's, there's quite a few. Uh, go, go look up uh, any sort of the. In fact, in the UK is the only. Um, well, it's Leeds University is the has a, a doctorate in playworking, uh, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Um, but there's there's plenty of resources out there, so uh, yeah, I'm sure you can find some more local to home. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much, Alex. It's been absolutely wonderful. Um, when I wrap up with my guests, I always ask them if there was one one thing or like two things you would want our listeners to take from this conversation, what would it be for you? Uh, the, the slogan for the Agile Learning Centers uh, are children are people. And I'd say that that's, uh, it, it just sums it up so well for me um, that the more you can just look at, I'm not saying that children don't need help and uh, they are different than adults, but they're still people and they deserve rights, like truly, truly rights. Um, and, and don't be hard on yourself. This isn't, this isn't something to take personally or to get defensive about. Uh, I started out not knowing and not getting it and I mess it up all the time. Having the intention of trying to just, whoever the, the young people are, whether they're your students, your children, your nephew and niece, whatever, just try to, try to think about, you know, try to think about the, as like your spouse or something like that. Like, how would you treat that person? Would you ever like, how would they react if you screamed at them? Not well, so why are we doing that to children? And, and, then, and then how do you replace that with something that's positive? How do you talk to them like what you did hurt me, it upset me and talk to them as an equal as you would going up to your spouse. Like last night when we got in a fight and you went to bed without talking to me, uh, it really hurt my feelings and I wanted to resolve it rather than how dare you go to your room or whatever, you know, like, <laughs> like and, and the more that you can do that, the more they'll be responsive. And ultimately then the less baggage we gr grow into as adults, uh, unfortunately I'm looking to put therapists out of business. That's my, my goal, you know, to, oh, good. to we, we all grow no up. No more trauma, no more trauma and PTSD. <laughs> training therapy <laughs> yeah awesome uh, yeah so thank thank you so much for this opportunity it's, it's a real a real pleasure and an honor no it's been it's been absolutely fabulous and i hope we can keep in touch because yeah really awesome yeah uh Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. You can also reach me via Twitter at FlourishingHE on LinkedIn, or you can join our private Facebook group, Flourishing Education. All the links are easily available on anchor.fm. Thank you so much. And I hope you are flourishing. Bye for now.